I remember sitting with them and saying, you know, you guys, it's called the music industry or the music business because those two words coexist. You can't have one without the other. You need to understand that it can't just be about the talent. And I would do this with student performers too, like Charlie Puth. I would say you just can't show up and be super talented. You have to know how to read a contract, you know, how to negotiate for yourself. What do all these line items mean? What is force majeure? What are all these things? I just was adamant about having the students watch me do what I do, but then giving them the autonomy. I would give them a night and I would say, now you book this. You've watched me. Now you book a bunch of bands and let's see what you can do. Welcome, I'm your host Dino Cattaneo and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, we talked to Ronell Richards, author of the upcoming book, Shut the Hell Up and Sell. We discussed how when your aim is to build genuine long-term relationships and always deliver more value to your clients than what you get back from them, sales can actually be a very authentic discipline. As you will hear at the beginning of the conversation, this episode is dropping on my birthday and so I decided to have a very good friend as a guest. Jack Indrizano spent the bulk of her career in entertainment, booking music and comedy venues in Boston. She built not one, but two college venues, one at Northeastern University and one at Berkeley College of Music. We talked a lot about what it means to run a business where your team members are students. So your goal as a manager is not just to run a successful business, it is also to prepare your employees for a long-term career in the industry. Jackie's story is also a story of incredible resilience. As you will hear in the episode, she had to endure some pretty massive personal tragedies and had to reinvent herself a couple of times. So as you go through these episodes, there's a lot of learning. And I also hope if you're going through a hard time yourself, you will find inspiration in Jackie's courage and what she was able to pull herself through. Jackie, welcome to the podcast. I'm very excited to have you. I'm going to share a little secret for you. Even though it is a few weeks away, this year my birthday falls on a Monday, which means that it will be a release date for one of my episodes. And I have chosen you to be my birthday guest because I think you're amazing. Wow. It is an honor to be part of your birthday. To know that you were just born to do what you do and to just be a beacon of light and love and all kinds of things for people. It's an honor, my friend. I want to start a conversation. I met you probably about 10 or 11 years ago, and I knew who you were because you were one of the leading people in the music scene in Boston. And I met you at one of the Boston group managers meetings. And I remember first across the table, I think it was in the old uh, Newbury Comics offices when you, we used to have them there. I remember, first of all, realizing, oh, that's Jackie Grisano. And then very quickly through the conversation, having this moment like, oh, cool. Here's somebody who is definitely not afraid to be who she is. And so I'm going to start with the first question. How do you define authenticity for yourself? Okay. So I thought about this. I love this word. And I came up with the fact that to me, it's the unbridled moment of accepting like who you are, being truthful to your core, but also the willingness to put yourself out there. And within that, the expectation of not being tethered to a party line or beholden to what others might think of you, which is none of your business. Really hard to accept, but that's what get you there ultimately. <laughs> Nobody starts able to fully embrace who they are, especially when they're receiving different messages from the environment they're in. What was the process for you to start coming into yourself and say, it's not only okay to be who I am, but it's actually the best way for me to be? I think it's an ongoing process. I don't think I'm fully there. I think that with every decade comes more like personal and professional moments where you keep digging deeper and deeper and unearthing the truths that are closer to your heart. I think that 
surrounding myself with family and friends and colleagues who seemed to support what me, who they saw in front of them or encouraged me to be me, which then made me go, okay, who am I? Okay, I need to dig deeper on this me that they see because that is my outward truth. What's my inward truth? So it's it's digging. It's just, I keep digging. With every decade comes a new set of everything. Yeah, that's true. I want to maybe start in the early phase of our career because like one of the reasons why I wanted to have you here is that actually you spend a significant portion of your early career building two venues within universities, which put you in a very unique position because you worked with students who were going through the process of working within the venue for you as informing themselves as sort of preparing themselves for their career. And then you also spent a lot of time working with artists and agents. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your experiences there and then and then we'll get into some questions around you know, your leadership styles and advice that you may have for people that are working with younger people or, you know, and with creative people. I think you just touched on something that I didn't think about until you just said it. My beginnings of the music industry after I booked The Rat, which was such an iconic, established, you know, music venue in the country, in the world, then going into higher ed, which is not something a lot of people think about when they think music industry, right? They're not thinking, well, I'm going to go to a higher education environment and find how I can do that there. It was just random and off the beaten path that I got to my alma mater, which was Northeastern University, to develop after hours for them, which is a private on-campus club. You have to either go there or be a guest of somebody to get into those shows. And then Berkeley, of course, that was my room for almost 10 years. It's, it, it's, I think being around students helped me grow as a professional because that same exuberance and joy and awe and wonder that they have or just enveloped me and I became one of them. And then I decided I needed to champion all of them, let alone the bands coming in or the agents, because I was good at it. I love to network. I love to be the conduit by which people find other people that they can collaborate with. Um, I think that that youthful energy is what got me to where I am now, but it was very unconventional. I mean, Still to this day, when people talk about what I've done, they scratch their head because being on, again, being on a campus is not where you would put somebody who's going to have a career in the music industry, but it was awesome. Let's start from the red, because I, you know, if anybody who is in the greater Boston area and likes music, hears the name the red and as you mentioned the red was a legendary venue how did you get started there and what was the attraction for you to go into a world like like the music industry especially when you started out and especially the booking part was not necessarily something where a woman would venture or would be welcome i know right so the truth. I'm giving you all the raw diggity on all my moments that I just stormed the castle, if you will. I literally walked into the rat. I was in college, undergrad. I was working at, again, another iconic situation. I had opened the Boston Hard Rock Cafe, which all of these things led to the next thing. I was a waitress at the Boston Hard Rock Cafe. Um, I was in college. I was interning at WBCN and I was constantly around music industry people. So the rat was just me hearing about the space, walking in there in the middle of the day and saying to somebody I knew on the inside, I want to be an intern here. And then meeting with Jimmy Harold, who by the way, just passed away. Rest in power, Jim, the legendary owner of the rat. He booked the police when nobody knew who they were. I mean, he's, he had so many stories. But I walked in and I sat in front of him. I'll never forget this. And I said, I want to be an intern here and learn how to book, book bands. And he said, 
I'm not paying you. <laughs> and I said, that's cool. Internships are usually free. I can do this. And he goes, fine, go work with Scott Lino, who was the then booking agent. Fine, go. And I went to work with Scott and Scott left shortly after that, very shortly after that. And Jimmy turned to me and was like, you're going to book the place now, right? And I'm like, what? He goes, it's yours. You're going to book the place. And I said, uh, okay. And I just got thrown into it and I learned how to book. And being in that kind of gritty DIY environment is what gave me a lot of the chutzpah that you know me to have. I think being in the rat, being one of the only female bookers in the country at that point gave me just a lot of tenacity and, and drive to like, do it, do it, do it. But if I'm being really honest, I had a lot of supportive males around me as well. I, I didn't go through what a lot of women went through. I seemed to bypass that. And at least the guys I was working around and the agents I was talking to were super supportive and super on the up and up. And what made you decide to, as you said, like the choice to go to a university is somewhat unconventional after that, right? You're booking one of the great rock rooms in the country and you go to university. What was the driver in that choice? At that point, I had gotten married and I had had my son, Michelangelo, and having a more normal, <laughs> what I thought would be a more normal lifestyle, which turned out to be not that for a little while, at least at Northeastern, I was there. My boss at that point wanted the space open from like 8 p.m. till, I'm not kidding you, three or four in the morning to keep kids safe. They would have a place to go after they went out all night. It was super challenging for the first couple of years. And then it got good. But I had gone to school there. And one of the deals, if you work at a university, is you can get your education. Uh, they build that into your packet, your benefits. So I thought, okay, I'm going to work here. I'm going to keep booking and I'm, I'm going to get my master's degree at the same time. And I'm going to be a wife and a mother and a dog owner. And I'm going to write 25 page papers on the weekends. And that's a, tr I had hustle. It's, <laughs> I had mad hustle. <laughs> I laugh because it seems insane to me now. And I had a super supportive husband. I've got to mention that. Oh yeah. Did you start after hours or did that already exist when you went there? It existed, but not where I took it. It was already kind of a student center and it had some programming. But when I took it on, I just, the Dresden Dolls came and I was trying to bring in bands and performers that the students would never have seen. A lot of it was local. A bulk of it was national. In fact, I'm looking up at posters right now and I'm looking at Augustana and I'm looking at the Dresden Dolls over there, Teddy Geiger, Hanson. I have a really long list of who I brought in there. And I was given a lot of autonomy to just run with it. So it existed, but not where I took it. I always change it up. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> That's an excellent point. Connecting to my next question, which is, I don't think, you know, regular music fans who like to go to venues, etc., they may not necessarily know sort of what it takes to get a successful venue going. And, you know, how do you create the vision for the type of artists? How do you balance having artists that may support your artistic vision with the realities of, you know, the fact that ultimately you have economic goals that are also given. So how do you think about that when you take on a new venue and, you know, and, and maybe think about it like in the terms of if somebody was an entrepreneur that was starting some other business, you know, what are sort of like the key, the key thought processes that you go through? The main thing is know your audience, know your constituents. I was very lucky. Uh, the rat was fully established, so I didn't need to do anything there. But when I did After Hours and then when I built the Red Room at 939 for Berkeley, when that came online, I just kept asking, I think you need to know 
who your target is, not your demographic as they call it, but that can be a wide age range. But at both of those colleges, I spent a lot of time researching, reading, Polestar, things like this, trying to remain on the cutting edge, looking at trends, but also having meetings with students and saying, who do you want to see? Who are you listening to? This is before Spotify. This is before Pandora. This is before all of this. So Napster (laughs) and uh, MySpace, right? Back in the day, I I just doing a lot of research, paying attention. Back then, of course, we had the Phoenix. So reading who the bands were that were playing at other rooms in the city and then doing research on them and then talking to the students, but asking the students to kind of bring their research to me. Um, and a lot of times I'd have to say that's way too high up there for our 210 capacity room. Uh, but let's find, let's bring that down a couple notches and find out if you like them, who is more likely to come here. Um, and sometimes just throwing, you know, a Hail Mary and seeing if an agent would be like, well, for the right money, you know, maybe sure. An underplay. So get landing those big fish sometimes in a small pond would happen because my relationship with the agents was really, really great. And, you know, one of the things I did do was with the permission of the agents, I would put them on speaker in my offices so that the students around me could listen to how we were talking. They were listening to negotiations. So it was constantly, you're asking me, like, it was a team, it was a collaboration. I elevated what I knew But if I didn't know something, I would try to find out who did and I would learn because I didn't know everything. And quite frankly, when you're given, like at least with Berkeley, a brand new space and you're just told to have at it, that's a lot of responsibility, especially at a school like that. You know, this internationally known music college, university. But I just loved what I did which fueled everything else. You know, I, I had to love what I do. I had to really love it to my core or it wouldn't be good for me to be there. Everybody has asked me my whole life to be in sales. I have been approached a million times to sell this and sell that and do this. and do. If I don't believe in something and it doesn't resonate with me, I just can't do it. So music and entertainment and now comedy, this matters to me. So I'll give it 110% that number, you know, 110%. <laughs> There's a fascinating point in there is that, you know, as you progress to your career and, you know, you at this stage where uh, a mother and a family member and somebody who were raised on certain music trends and certain passions and your audience is in a different stage. And I think in this, you know, especially in today's, you, you hear a lot of people that are sort of in our age group that grew up with certain acts that have no respect for the new music that's coming out and that the young people are listening to. How do you keep that fresh? How do you keep that connection with your market and your audience, you know, when you were building both After Hours and and The Red Room? Oh, it's so easy. I'm a fan. Like, I'm a fan first. Like, I want to go see all the old music, all the new music, I would talk to my son about music. Again, talking to like, who's everybody listening to? It's really funny. There were many times, and we still laugh about it, my son and I, where I would know who a band was before he knew. Or we would be in a store, believe it or not, like, let's say, (laughs) this is a true story, we'd be in like Nordstrom Rack, and they would have music on, and I'd be like, that's all J, that's Glass Animals. And he would just smile at me, and he'd go, yup. I was an early onboarder of Shazam. Like if I was in my car and I heard something, I would Shazam it. And I have to give a lot of props, believe it or not, to um, WERS, Emerson's iconic college radio station. They break a lot of new music. FNX back in the day, breaking a lot of new music. I I also would follow my DJs. You know, I would follow the Angel Woods and the Angie C's of the world and the Tammy Heidi's and the Lisa Traxler's and Adam Twelve, on and on and on and hear what they were talking about. I was in constant research 
mode, but I was a super fan, which was like, this was like manna. This was like food to my soul. So it was easy. I loved it. I still love it. Early on, you mentioned the fact that when you were booking acts for your student venues, you know, you would leave the phone on so that the students with you could hear the negotiating process. So I want to ask you a broader question around that. When you built uh, both After Hours and then the Red Room at Berkeley, your, you know, overall, the mandate of your job was, of course, to create a, a room that would resonate with the school and, uh, you know, and be a good room. But at the same time, because a lot of the people who came and worked through, I have to assume there was also a mandate to kind of have these people have this experience be sort of a, a launching pad into their career in the music business because, of course, everybody knows about Berkeley, but Northeastern also has a, an incredible music business program. So how do you think about structuring the roles and managing students that are working with you both to fulfill the needs of the venue, but also to help them prepare themselves for their career? I remember early on uh, when I would have student employees, I would say to them, they were all music industry, music business students. At Berkeley, some of them majored in something else. You have to have like a, a performance major, whatnot. But when I remember sitting with them and saying, you know, you guys, it's called the music industry or the music business because those two words coexist. You can't have one without the other. You need to understand that it can't just be about the talent. And I would do this with student performers too, like Charlie Puth. I was the original Charlie Puth. Come to my venue. Let's do this together. Betty Who, Charlie Puth, all these kids. I would say you just can't, you know, show up and be super talented. You have to know how to read a contract, you know, how to negotiate for yourself. What do all these line items mean? What is force majeure? What are all these things? I just was adamant about having the students watch me do what I do, but then giving them the, the autonomy to, I would give them a night and I would say, now you book this. You've watched me. Now you book a bunch of bands and let's see what you can do. And there was a super successful program at Berkeley with that. I have to think of what it was called. You can still watch it on YouTube. They, they've disbanded, but when it was a thing, it was a thing because I let the students, you know, it, it was like a learning lab. We did this. Now you go and do this. I think people have to be, you have to know somebody's up to now, they call it. And then you have to support them and you have to let them try it. And then you have to reevaluate. And you have to keep honing and honing. That's my leadership style. It's super collaborative. I always said to them, you know, this is a confluence of camaraderie and commerce. So we have to remember we're making money here. We need to keep the lights on. But how do we treat the artists? How do we treat our public? How do we treat each other? That's kind of my style. When you are giving students the autonomy to book a night, how do you think about the amount of autonomy and risk that you're willing to take with them to be safe both for yourself and for them? In all transparency, I think it's a lot easier to have that type of scenario unfold on a college campus than it would be in a commercial venue in Boston or Cambridge. I think when you're looking at paying the bills and wait staff and bartenders and security at the door, there is a lot of pressure for my booking agent colleagues and friends in Boston to make sure they're booking shows that are viable. I mean, not counting the last three years of how it's still very up and down. I think the safety of a college campus is I never, not once, got spoken to if a show didn't do bonkers, didn't, you know, didn't sell out or, or wasn't really well attended. Um, that example, I'll give you a really great little example of that. There was an artist that I found in New York City. I saw him at a conference. I went up to him afterwards and I said, I really would like to bring you to Boston. And he said, I don't have a lot of friends in Boston. I'll do my best. 
maybe 17 people. And I said, don't worry, I'm going to build a show around you that'll help you help your draw. I'm going to put you in the middle, but I really think people need to see you. Long story short, he came. It wasn't really well attended. There were probably less than 50 people in the room, but the people in the room got to see Nathaniel Raycliffe perform on a stool by himself. He went by Nathaniel the wheel at that point and they got to, the students got to see him. We took a chance and now <laughs> the rest is history. I just was a big risk taker, but I was also protected on the college campuses. Again, I know the difference because I have booked commercial rooms as well as you know. So there's a little, there's a lot of difference there. So when you give the students, okay, this is your night. Yep. When it's a success, great. When it's not a success, how do you handle the debriefing of a student after, you know, to make sure that they take the learning lesson, but they're not discouraged? Well, I ask them the due diligence on the front end. What did we do right on the front end? Did we market this right? Did we know who we were booking? Did we impress upon the artists that there's a collaboration here that they have to market it as much as, as hard as we are? I first ask that. And then I talk about what they felt went off well and what they would adjust for the next one. I've never looked at a group of students and said, this was a complete disaster. How did this happen? I never chastised. It's not my nature. I'm not a yeller. I looked at them and thought, I liked a lot of what I saw. We need to do this, 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 and this moving forward. Like we need to really work on that. It usually boils down to the marketing and promotion of a show. It's really all about that because the talent is there. It's all about like my dear friend, Matt Walt once said, Jackie, sometimes the gravitational pull of somebody's couch is greater than anything you've got booked. So I, I've taken heart and I've shared that with my students, but I gave them the safety to learn how to book a room. And many of them have gone on to be huge players in the industry, way bigger than I ever was or am way that like one of my girls right now just stopped managing Miley Cyrus. And now she's managing little Nas X. I mean that level, uh, because we gave them her name's Adriana Arce. Hi, honey. Uh, we gave them a lot of room, you know, to develop. I just led with my heart and I treated them all with respect and grace. There's one of your former students that you introduced me to that, I ended up introducing to my son who was an aspiring comedian and at the time was an aspiring musician in Boston. And they still meet in New York once a month or something for lunch. And, and this you know, student of yours has been very successful in his own career in this field. And he's been incredibly generous with my son. So I know that there's a certain amount of that culture that's it's very nice to see passed down through and, and paid forward. Oh, yeah. I think, Dino, you really... That word culture is really a thing for me. My company culture, I have kind of attributes that I hold near and dear to me that I think everybody around me um, that that has worked with me, I'd like to say they worked with me and not for me. They We've all worked together. I think it's it's kind of brushed off on them. I also really, if you look at it, I was their parents' age when they were in college and they were away from their parents or their aunties or their uncles. And so I represented, I think that I was given a lot of respect and loyalty just by default, because I, even though I behaved like somebody their age with my youthful exuberance, I was in fact their parents' age for the most part. <laughs> yeah. And I, I may take this part out depending whether you're comfortable or not, but I remember at uh, Angelo's funeral, I remember Amy and the Engine. Is was that the band? Yes, Amy and the Engine. Like I remember them showing up for you and how they showed up for you, and and you could really tell the type of relationship that you had built with them. So you can leave that in for sure because I talk about Angelo going to another part of this. Amy is now writing for Halsey, and everybody like she <laughs> she's huge. <laughs> Amy's huge. Yes. She's like a massive 
writing star. I know. So um, we talked about Angelo. You had to overcome an incredible tragedy in your life. And I'll just let you sort of talk about what you're comfortable, how you want to tell the story and sort of how, you, you know, it's a story that it, it's a tragedy that I think put you in some really challenging times and hopefully you've come through some of that at least. And so however you want to address that, I will leave it up to you. Well, it, it's interesting because what people know and probably your listeners definitely don't know is that Angelo was like the straw that broke the camel's back. But prior to that, you know, we had lost our family dog. He had lost one of his brothers. Then he passed away unexpectedly on vacation. Then my son went to college a month and a half after that, my only son. And then I had to put one of my dogs, my biggest dog, my baby, she had to go to a friend because I had to sell my place and they wouldn't take my big dog and my little dog. So it was, as my therapist said, people usually have one of these things happen, not five or seven all at once. So really, in that very, very short time period, let's say under a year, within six months, anything minus my health just blew especially the death of my husband, which came out of nowhere on vacation. So after I dropped my son off at school, Angel Wood actually drove with me. Again, talking about connections and networking and people who've got your back, drove all the way there and all the way home. I literally remember walking in my house and saying out loud, who the fuck am I anymore? I don't know who I am. I'm not a wife. I'm a mother, but my kid's in college. I'm not an owner of a bunch of dogs. I currently don't have a job. What is going on here? And the truth be told, you know, I don't know. I know what kept me going was the fact that I was mother. The fact that I had something bigger than myself to keep persevering and keep pushing. But I don't know what it was. Ralph Jacketine, I know I'm name dropping, but I, I love giving people credit when they have been there for me. Ralph Jacketine has said to me for years, you've got a tremendous amount of grit. You, you have a lot of grit and grit and faith and gravitas and just music. <laughs> I have to be honest, have kept me going, but, um, the support of former students of mine, people reaching out to me, that's what kept me persevering. And I have had over the years, it's been seven years now, if you can even believe this, I've had so many people say, I watched you so that I could learn from you. And I would say back humbly, I, I wasn't really trying to teach anybody anything. It felt like I was in the middle of the ocean and just trying to tread water and not drown, you know, not drown, not go all the way down because it was that dark, but I just kept getting up and thinking there had to be something for me on the other end. And truthfully, that something at that point was a job. So I had to go through all these very avant-garde jobs, crazy jobs that nobody would do until I find it, finally landed back in the music industry full-time, only to switch that up in the last couple of months and end up in the comedy industry, which is, we're doing music too, but it's the same thing. So perseverance, um, faith. And when I say faith, I don't mean denominational. I just mean really looking up to the sky going, please, please help me, you know, please. And, and animals and friends and nature and all that. Yeah, I've been one of the people that has followed what was going on in, in the last few years. And I think it was really when, when you mentioned that you landed back in the music industry, booking a big room here, I, I had that feeling like finally, you know, she's back where she belongs. But what it's really important for people, and I think in a way where your story hopefully can inspire people you know, you dropped out of the industry for a number of years. And it's an industry where 
for certain roles, there's more scarcity of that role because at the end of the day, if you're committed to certain regional areas, there's only a limited number of people that do that specific work. How did you go about repositioning yourself and being able to get back into it after you know, a few years off the market? What were some of the things that helped you being ready to seize the opportunity when it came and then helped you actually get it? Because I think that would be helpful for people who are listening, who may be going through something similar. Well, when I realized that I could actually re-enter, and it was very painful not to be in it because, you know, like you alluded to, you it's a, it's a scarce role being a talent buyer, booking agent, whatever you want to call us. There's not a lot of opportunities for that unless you want to move. So there was thing when I didn't want to move. I thought I... I wondered if I was still relevant anymore. I wondered who would take a chance on me had I aged out, even though I'm not that old. I'm just thinking, to be honest, I'm a woman in the industry. I'm not 20. Like, is there any more room for me? Over the years that I wasn't in it, I kept in touch with people who were, but again, never thinking I could get back in. And I was waiting for a room to come online. You live here, you know, there's only but so many rooms in Boston and Cambridge. So waiting, waiting, waiting. And then something came online. And kind of like if we hearken back to the beginning of this conversation, when I walked in the rat, I was on LinkedIn and I threw a Hail Mary at the vice president of programming for this venue in New York. And I had met him once and we shared mutual agent friends. And I had actually reached out to them before reaching out to them and saying, what do you think? And they were like, oh my God, please come back, come back, come back. The the way I was received surprised me. I didn't think people cared or remembered, but I didn't burn any bridges. So I was like, okay. And I threw a long pass again, uh, sports references, sports. And I kept going through the interview and it and it kept getting smaller and smaller. And then I was getting nervous. I'm like, oh my God, do I really have a chance to do this again? The thing that I love. And then I got it. And I remember going back on Facebook, but I, because I had gotten off Facebook, I remember just throwing a post out there saying that I had gotten this job and it was like 400 replies. It was crazy. It was People that I didn't even know were paying attention were like, "Add a girl, yes, we want you. It was so, they were waiting. And I'm wondering if, you know, it was just so nice. And I did what I could with that space for about eight months. It just wasn't a good fit for me. It, it wasn't the booking that I was used to. It's a very different model, but I love and respect the people that book for, for this space nationally very, very much. I'm still great friends with them. I actually still can communicate with my old boss. So that says something, but it wasn't a good fit for me. I wasn't used to how they did this. And again, one more time, if we're talking to the listeners about how to do this, when I realized this wasn't a good fit and that it was not, I think when you're leaving a job at the end of a day and you're not happy, try it for one day, try it for two. If it's consistent where you're like, I wasn't unhappy with what I was doing. It just wasn't a good fit. I knew I had to go um, for my sanity, for my well-being, I had to go. So at the same time, I had, again on LinkedIn, <laughs> I heard there was this other space opening Brand new again, another new space, Dina. It's always a new space. Another new space. I'm very entrepreneurial, everybody out there. If you got a new space, call me. I'll, I'll do it. So a new space came online and I had heard about my now boss over the years, Casey, of the Cabot. And so I just threw my hat in the ring and again, went through the process and got the job. And just so your listeners know about being tenacious, the same time I don't even think you know this, Dino. At the same time that I was interviewing for my current position, my mother was dying and she died 
the day after. I was in Virginia on a Zoom call and she was in another room on a hospice situation at that point. And I got my act together and I went through the Zoom call and I actually let the guys know on the Zoom call that I was down in Virginia and they couldn't even believe that I was doing it. But I was like, if I didn't do it then, it's about this opportunity, right? I would have missed it. Somebody would have gotten the job. So I put on my big girl panties and I did the interview and I got it. But my mom died a day later. So I guess what I would say to all of this is this wild balance of being able to compartmentalize something like that, something like an Angelo, something like my mom, all of these things to realize I have to work for a living. I have to pay the bills, but I want to do something that brings me joy. I hope that that answered that. Not succinctly, but a lot. <laughs> no, and I actually remember this story. We talked about it uh, probably a couple of weeks after that happened when I saw that you were booking the comedy room at the Cabot. I have one last question. You're managing the whole room, not just booking it. I'm managing it. Yeah. That's fabulous. You know, when I look at that transition, it's a great little metaphor of something that many people in many industries struggle with, which is, you know, as you rightly pointed out, if you're booking in the music industry, at some point, 50%, 60% of what you bring to the table is the experience and the wealth of relationships that you've built in there, right? And so one could imagine even going back into it five or six years later, agents are different, acts that were big five or six years ago, you know, this, this is like a 32 second industry for a lot of people. <laughs> and so like even the idea of restarting with maybe like half of your key industry competencies, and then transition into a completely new world, which is comedy, which there may be some overlap in the agents, but I, I have to imagine that it's a completely different world and market to know. When and how did you start thinking about your core expertise being in understanding and building a room and building a draw versus being an expert in the music industry? Well, First and foremost, I think that it's important for when people are even trying to hire people that there are a lot of transferable skills. There's there's a lot of the same skills within both of these worlds that I've lived in. Again, it's entertainment. So there's that one foundation, there's that one um, core thing. I am involved in entertainment. I'm not in pharmaceuticals. I'm not in a company that I wouldn't do well at. I'm in a very tricksy business of hospitality and entertainment. So within that, you've got to have the willingness to, you need to realize that you're dealing with a lot of personalities. <laughs> and I think that my big personality bodes well in an industry with many personalities. I'm finding it really exceptionally interesting and heartwarming to look at a comedian go up on stage. And by the way, I've been up there already a couple of times. You need to come see me. I'm doing my thing. But I never got on stage and played a guitar. There's a big difference here. Tambourine, not guitar. Comedians are vulnerable. Musicians are vulnerable. I'm very good with vulnerable people because I'm protective of them. I'm looking at my own skills and I'm realizing what they have and how I can relate to that and how I can listen to them. I am a visionary by choice. Like my leadership is, you know, visionary, transformative, collaborative, coaching. I'm bringing all these things to my artists, to my public. It's the same type of public. So I'm very used to who they are. These folks are coming in for a good time. Either they know who the comedian is or they knew who the band was or they, they don't. So I understand the public. A different world now in the last, you know, three years. But I've had to understand what that looks like as well. So I take seminars on safety and all that kind of stuff. Understand my staff. I try to surround myself with people who, first and foremost, have to love being here. They have to love music. They have to love comedy. But a lot of the folks that I employ have opposite skill sets than I do. So then I'm always learning. And I'm watching them really own who they are and what they bring to the table. And then I'm merging that with what I have. And we're both learning from each other. I think it's really important 
to understand somebody's, again, that phrase up to now. And I think it's important for people to remember when they've hired people, why did they hire that person and really giving that person their moment to shine. So all of these things have made for me doing really well in these very similar environments. If I ever left this, I would do well back in a higher ed environment, in another entertainment environment, in a restaurant, on a food truck, hospitality. I don't think I would do, I know where I wouldn't do well. I can't do a nine to five job where I just punch in, punch out. Everybody hates being there. Everybody wants to retire. I demand joy. I demand high energy. So I just know who I am at this point. I better know who I am at this point, at least in the work world, you know, know who you are, know what kind of environment you want, and then add to that culture. And if you can't add to that culture, it's time for you to go, (laughs) go look for something else. (laughs) So that actually generated one more question. At what point in your career did you really sort of come down to the like knowing who you are, knowing what type of environment to say yes to and knowing what type of environment to say no to? I think in leadership, if the people, my leaders, the people that I work for embrace who I am, that really motivates me to do more, do better and be fabulous. I think that people have accepted who I am They know that I'm not a cookie cutter type of employee. They know that I have opinions, um, not opinionated in a bitchy way, just that I'll speak up and I'll speak my mind. They know that I'm a consummate cheerleader for other staff members. I mean, at staff meetings, I'm, I've led them before. I've been asked to lead them before. I am happy for everybody. I want everybody to win. I really do. I understand that whole model of not everybody gets a blue ribbon, but I want everybody to win. I want everybody to love their their job. I think I've been given the support by the people that I work for, by the leadership. And I've also been very transparent about if there's areas of opportunity that I need to work on, let's have a uh, respectful conversation about it as I do with my staff, and let's figure out some strategies for me to do, for me to reach my best self. Um, I demand FaceTime with my leaders when I can get it, not all, all the time, but I stay connected to who I report to. I don't just flounder out in the great big sea, not knowing how I'm doing, what I'm doing. And then inadvertently, if you do something wrong, you get chastised. You're like, wait a minute, I, I, I didn't even know. I didn't have a conversation. I think if you're in a role of leadership, you need to understand that that role also means that you're paying attention to who works for you and you're giving them feedback. And not all the time, you're not micromanaging. I'm not a micromanager but I have only become who you see organically. This is how I was born, but I've been able to really come into my own and keep on transforming because I've been in environments where people, people love the Jackie that they see. (laughs) Charlie Pooh said, everyone needs a Jackie in their pocket. (laughs) That was really nice of him. (laughs) I'm lucky about that. That's fabulous. I'm going to close our professional part of the conversation here, go a little more to the personal. What is a passion of interest that you have outside of work and how has that helped you both in and outside of work? Well, currently, I'm very happy that college football (laughs) is back in full swing. I'm a real nerd when it comes to college football. And you can understand that. I mean, I was, ironically, I was on two campuses that didn't have football teams, but uh, I support my son's University of South Carolina football team. Go Gamecocks. I love college football because I love all that, that pageantry of it. Um, I wish they would show the halftime shows because the bands are really, really dope. You can Google a lot of them. Um, I love live music. I go out and see live music as much as I can. Um, The ocean, I dip in the ocean throughout the whole year to kind of do like a cleanse of of sorts and get all that good salt water on me. Um, and And I read and I have a book currently that I keep around me. It's kind of become my... Bible, if you will. 
it's not woo woo. It's not like that. She's just a prolific writer. And she wrote this book. Her name is Brene Brown. And she wrote this book called Atlas of the Heart. And it really, she just breaks down human nature in a way that I've never seen it done. And so that keeps me going. And then, of course, as I think you know, I cook and I love to go to farmer's markets and bring home food and cook. I like to cook for other people. I don't like to cook for myself. I like to have people over and have dinners. And I would love to do that for you and Susan and cook with you guys and just have conversations. And my conversations do not include politics, just so we know, because that never ends well. (laughs) That's fabulous. And I think you answered the final question, although I will have a different version of it. My next question is actually around, there's expressions often often in business that get overused, get annoyed, which is an expression that drives you crazy? Oh, one that just goes through me. I hate it. Oh, it is what it is. No. It is what it is. It's a big cop-out. It's usually uttered by people who need to retire because they have zero interest in progress and they weren't listening to anybody in the first place. So I hate it is what it is. I can't stand that. I don't also understand this new one. Well, I know what it is, but the new normal, I get what people are alluding to with the new normal, but that word normal has never been something that's ever been part of me personally. Because I don't really know what normal is, because I don't think any of us are normal. I think we're all abnormal, which makes us all super interesting. So the new normal can go away. Um, And then I don't know that this is not really a phrase, but I don't like the thought of canceling people and things. I think there's a better way of doing things. Um, If you don't understand conflict negotiation, maybe read a Dan Goldman book, maybe go read the emotional intelligence book. Canceling people is just, again, a big cop out or somebody admitting that they don't want to hear somebody else's side and then come to in the middle and kind of mediate a good conversation. So these are the things or think outside of the box. I'll just end with that. I've never even been in a box. I don't even know what that means. Think outside of the box. You shouldn't be in a box in the first place because that confines things. If you're living in four squares, like four parts that make a square, you should really get out of that box and set yourself free. So (laughs) those are the things. That's fantastic. So you already answered the food for the body or soul question with the Brené Brown book, but I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to take advantage of your expertise and knowledge of comedy and tell our listeners who are some of the comedians that they should listen to and look out for. And also, if you want to mention your venue and and sort of where you are. Okay. So we're the off Cabot. So you've got the Cabot Theater where they're new. You have to come, you know, where they're brand new. Brand new club down the street on Nine Wallace Drive, right? So people that I love. Okay. Gosh, there's so many. It's such a great, great medium. Craig Conant from LA. I love him so much. I love Craig Conant. I love my ladies. I love Kelly McFarlane. I love Kathy Gilmore. I love Kendra Lindsberg. I love, let me see. I'm looking at my wall because I have them sign my wall, which is so old school of me. Oh, Ivana Benetti. She's upcoming. She's from the North End. Everybody keep your eye on Ivana Benetti. Ironically, we grew up with them in, in the North End. So that's really well. Uh, Dave Caggiano, Alan Monroe, Carrie Louise, and hey, Catherine Cohen, who's never played here yet. I'm trying to snag her from New York City. Hey, Catherine Cohen. Come play the room. But um, John Tobin Presents does a great job booking the room. And there's just so many good comedians. Will Noonan. I I couldn't even name all of them. They're just so great. I don't think I've seen a bad one. Brianna Woodward, she's new. They're just great. They're just great. It's not easy to do it, right? You're with a band. You've got people behind you. You can play another song. If you tank a song, you're a comedian. You think seven minutes is short. You just have no idea (laughs) until you get up there. It's long. That's fabulous, Jack. Thank you so much. You're welcome. 
Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it too and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, please tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode when they get posted. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating or a review. Remember to stay tuned because at the end of the credits, I will play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. You can find Jackie on LinkedIn at linkedin.com backslash n backslash Jacqueline Indrizano, spelled J-A-C-Q-U-E-L-I-N-E-I-N-D-R-I-S-A-N-O. Jackie's also a voiceover actress, so you can find her contact information and some demos at rebelindrizano.com dot icanvoice.com spelled r-e-b-l-i-n-d-r-i-s-a-n-o dot i-c-a-n-v-o-i-c-e dot com for more information about jackie and other links go to the podcast website al4ep.com you can email me at dino at al4ep.com on twitter and instagram look for at al4edp and on facebook look for the show authentic leadership for everyday people This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now for Susan Songs, a tribute to the beauty of vinyl records, featuring the great Bill Kirchhoff, the titan of the Telecaster on guitar. It's a song called in the grooves. Enjoy. You drop the needle on a 45 Watch as the whole world came alive Round and round the music sparked To the beat, beat, beat of your final heart He gave Elvis Presley his blue suede shoes James Brown all of his stylish moves The turntable spoke the gospel truth Said it all comes down to what's in the grooves What's in the grooves That record store was just down the block for a couple of bucks Rush it home